Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to this July 17th edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Nipun Chopra. Thanks for joining us. Tonight, Karthik Krishna and I are recording a special podcast where we will have a, do a quick preview of the upcoming International Champions Cup, as well as talk about a topic that our listeners often ask us about, that is promotion relegation in the USA. So, Karthik, before we get to that very controversial topic, uh, let's talk about something that's less controversial, which is the International Champions Cup. Uh, the games are being played all over the world, but we'll be focusing on the games played here stateside. And it all kicks off Karthik with a game between Scottish champion Celtic and English champions Leicester City. Uh, and let's start with the framework that Celtic are on the coming on the back of an embarrassing loss uh, to a semi-pro team out of Gibraltar. Yes, they, they lost the Lincoln Red uh, the other day. A team made up of a number of uh, different personalities, right? People who work <laughs> in the, at the auto mechanics place, people who are police officers, uh, f- footballers who are uh, uh, working at the uh, at the grocery store. Right. So uh, it was you, a tough would, way. Would you say it's a team full of character? Yeah, it's a team full of character, <laughs> which made an auspicious de- debut for Brendan Rodgers, certainly. But uh, it can't get any worse. They, they face, uh, in this kind of battle of Britain, the English Premier League champion, Leicester City, who have lost in Golo Conte to mm-hmm. Chelsea. Uh, or appears they have it at, at the time of this yes. recording. Uh, it's, it's official, yeah. It's official. Okay, so they have lost him, but are they, they've made some interesting moves. I think Ahmed Musa for coming over from Seska, a player you and I have both seen a lot in the mm-hmm. Champions League over the course of the last few seasons because Seska's always grouped with either Manchester City or Manchester United, it seems like. Uh, he's come over. I think he's a player that gives them a better option off the bench than what they had this past season when they did win the Premier League, of course, right. but they had to, when Vardy was out, they had to make uh, a do with Ajoa and Okazaki, two similar strikers, uh, juggle their, their midfield. Ranieri had to, uh, had to uh, sit Albright and bring Schlupp in to get that pace. I think with Musa, you've got some pace and you've also got a very strong striker. Uh, Damari Gray is, I think, got a great future as a winger and 
probably will be in the England setup at some point, but I don't think he can play as number nine in the Premier League. And the thought thinking was maybe he could when they signed him uh, as they were chasing the title in January. But I think now Ranieri and, and Lester are sold on him as a winger long term, a guy that uh, can give them some energy in wide areas and give them some pace. So Musa is a very big signing. Obviously, Mendy is also mm-hmm. and, and Hernandez are also two fairly big signings. But I like what Lester's done this uh this summer thus far, uh, they're the champions. Uh, uh, they're the champions until someone dethrones them. Chances of them repeating are not very good, but I still think they're one of the top teams in English football. Yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you on all of that. Uh, I think Napoli's Mendy is, is a very good signing, especially it seemed like about three weeks ago, Leicester City resigned themselves to the fact that Conte was going to leave. That's uh, N'Golo Conte, not Antonio Conte. Uh, and... I think they prepared themselves by signing Mendy right away. Uh, Mendy's a player that's attracted a lot of attention in Europe. He's uh, And I think it's a real coup that Leicester signed him because I know uh, you, Kartik, love yourself some Claudio Makaleli. So I think Mendy um, for a long time, even now, is considered the next Makaleli. Uh, so it's, it's a huge signing and I think it's a good replacement for Angola Conte, who we've discussed was uh, pretty much a a catalyst for them winning the league. And then Musa, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of Musa also. He scores uh, his uh, his goal rate at CS- CSK and for the Nigerian national team is very good. So good signing. Absolutely. And and I'll be interested to see what happens in this game. So it'll be fun to watch the Celtic-Leicester City game. The game after that is PSG-Inter. Uh, PSG-Kartik, obviously, uh, they have a new, new manager with Blanc uh, being fired after a very confusing set of events. But they themselves have gone through some uh, turnover with the playing personnel as well. Uh, they've lost Dinya uh, and Ibra, who we'll talk about when we uh, preview the Premier League season with us now playing at Man United. They sound Thomas Munier. They signed Ben Arfa and Krichowik from uh, Sevilla. Uh, Krichowiak, sorry. I don't know why I said Krichowiak. Krichowiak from Sevilla for... Uh, 34 million. So PSG has had a pretty interesting summer so far in terms of transfers and knowing them, they're not going to slow down just yet. No. And I think that there's a certain degree of, um, I don't want to say desperation, but a certain degree of concern about the PSG project because they haven't been able to advance past that quarterfinal stage of the champions league. So you're seeing a lot of refreshment and retooling right now. I, 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 all along thought they had a team that was good enough, not maybe to win the Champions League, but to make it at least to the semifinal stage in one of these past three or four seasons where they've been eliminated at the quarterfinal stage. But they haven't gotten past that. Right. We know Liga uh, is not doesn't represent much competition for them. So it's all about the Champions League, and they're making these moves looking at what they're going to do in Europe this season coming up. Yeah, and they were going to play Inter Milan, a, a team that uh, about – uh, until the time when Mourinho left, it was a powerhouse. But since Mourinho left, you know, Benitez took over. They had some financial problems and have become also runs kind of uh, in, in the Serie A. They have had a very productive uh, um, transfer window so far. They've had a lot of players come in, a lot of players leave on loan, and they've signed some crucial players. Uh, but the key signing, Karthik, is a free one, and that's Eva Banega from Sevilla. Yeah, and I think that that's a, uh, that's a very, very good signing for them, obviously. And, and Benega now has won uh, the Europa League on a, on a couple different occasions. Uh, he will be going up in this matchup against his former manager, Unai Emre, who has taken over PSG. Uh, it's, um, 
it's a it's an awkward time for Inter. I mean, it, it, this thing could go one of two directions, right? Inter could just fall into the kind of malaise that it's uh, that their local rivals AC Milan are in, and right. um, Inter has not played well in Serie A the last few seasons. But it doesn't seem like they're in the desperate position that uh, AC Milan is in, or they could climb back up the table and begin to challenge uh, Juventus at, at the top of uh, the Italian game. Yeah, we'll talk about AC Milan because, I mean, they have spent a lot of money this summer already, but we'll get to that. In case you're wondering how you get to watch these games, guys, um, you can watch them on TV, uh, on the website, on the World Soccer Talk website. There's a, a, a schedule set up where you can uh, sign up for Sling TV, and uh, which will be showing a lot of these games, and a lot of them will be showed also on uh, TV here in the States. Uh, but in case you're uh, wanting to watch these games live, there's only one place you should be looking at in order to get these games, and that's SeatGeek. Uh, SeatGeek is always the first place I go to look for games to, uh, for tickets to a game or, or a concert. Uh, for example, in terms of concert, we have a Coldplay concert here on Wednesday. I'm a big Coldplay fan, so I've been looking at tickets and I found tickets as cheap as $34, which is ridiculously cheap for a Coldplay concert. Uh, at uh, Bankers Life Fieldhouse. So I recommend that our listeners download the SeatGeek app on their phone because I have it on my phone and I was just looking at it the other day for tickets to these International Champions Cup games as well. And like the games we've mentioned, there are other games we'll talk about, uh, like uh, the return of Luis Suarez uh, to uh, play against Liverpool in the LFC Barca game later on uh, at the end of July, uh, early August. So those games as well. Uh, and... The thing SeatGeek does is that it places all the prices for you to compare by searching multiple ticket sites and ensuring that you get the best deal possible. And SeatGeek does all the work so you save time and money. And SeatGeek wants to help you get the most bang for your buck. Uh, for your buck. Uh, so, and in, in case you're wondering how you can do this, our listeners get $20 rebate, uh, $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. In order to do that, you have to do the following things. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, step one, you download the SeatGeek app. Step two, you go to the settings tab and click add a promo code. Step three, you enter promo code WSTPOD. And step four, SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So guys, if you want to watch the International Champions Cup, download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code WSTPOD today. Karthik, the next game we'll talk about uh, is the Real Madrid-PSG game. Uh, we just talked about PSG, who they've signed. Real Madrid have signed Alvaro Morata. Uh, and to be honest, there's not uh, been a lot of uh, ingoings and outgoings at Real Madrid yet, except for that. But we know how Real Madrid function, and I'm sure there will be some high-profile uh, signings here in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can count on it. I yep. don't know um, who, who who's going to be sold. If Hamas is going to be sold, if someone right. else is sold, but uh, to I'll, West Ham of all places, we'd be hearing about Hamas to West Ham, which is would be the craziest transfer. Would be would be the greatest example of the money power of the Premier League if Hamas went to West Ham. Yeah, I mean, I'm just speechless. No, no offense to West Ham. I think it would be great, actually. It'd be great for London. It'd be great for the opening of that Olympic Stadium. I, I think it would be fantastic for English football. But that's not something that um, 
was fathomable uh, too long ago. But then again, I, I, I didn't think that we would see some of these uh, other types of signings that we've seen in England. The idea uh, last summer of, of, of some of the guys signing with clubs, they they, they did. I mean, I, I pointed out. Stoke City? I, yeah, I remember seeing <laughs> Shakiri sign with Stoke, Kabai sign with Crystal Palace, right. and uh, Okazaki signed with Leicester. To me, we're all kind of uh, crazy signings. Uh, uh, guys to Bournemouth. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. But guys that you thought would go to better clubs. Now, as it turns out, in the Okazaki to Leicester uh, scenario, that was a uh, that was a great move for Okazaki because he won the Premier League, yeah. and he might not have won the Premier League if he had signed with Man United or Man City mm-hmm. instead. But I had watched him at Mainz and thought this is a guy that's going to a top three or four English club, and he signs with Leicester. That's where we are, and well, Leicester are now a top three or four English club, right. uh, partly because of it. Uh, that's where we are in the English game. So maybe West Ham. Uh, and they got, obviously, Payet, and we, we saw how that worked out. But Real Madrid's going to make some signings, uh, no doubt, uh, and we can start just playing fantasy football and uh, and uh, uh, pretending uh, pretending we know who those players are. I'm not sure we do. Uh, Morata uh, has been re-signed, has been brought back to Real Madrid. Is he just passing through on his way to another club? We don't know. Uh, so that's... Uh, that, that's a uh, that's big question about them. And then uh, perhaps they're going to get a look, good look at this PSG squad in this game and start rating those players. Yeah, it'll be a good game either way because we know there have been flirtations uh, amongst those players for both teams with both of those clubs, with Real Madrid and PSG. So it'll be a fun game to watch. Bayern versus Milan is a game that I'm looking forward to watching, Karthik. Uh, Bayern have signed Hummels on a free transfer from uh, rivals. Well, let's just go... Th- out on a limb right now and say ex-rivals Dortmund because the way Dortmund has hemorrhaged players already, I can't see them competing. And the big one uh, it, coming in is Renato Sanchez, who we've talked about a lot on uh, on the Euro, uh, talked about on the Eurocopa podcast. But they have lost Benatia to Juventus, who's a very good defender. Obviously, Hummels is his replacement, and Hoiberg to Southampton, who of course what didn't really make the <clears throat> grade at. Bayern, so the 20-year-old, was sold for a good price of $13 million. So Bayern has made some transfers already, and as we keep saying, there will be more ins and outs of that team. Yeah, and I think what we're going to see is a lot in terms of Carlo Ancelotti putting his stamp on the mm-hmm. club and bringing in some more pragmatic players, maybe some players who can play in a midfield diamond. Uh, we don't quite know how he's going to set up, but but he has liked that diamond in the past when he's yeah. had uh, the flexibility to, to play that. Uh, Real Madrid, there was, you know, Real Madrid, he had to figure out a way to get uh, Benzema Bale and uh, mm-hmm. and Ronaldo and Hamas. And, no, and, Di, and Di Maria. And Di Maria yeah, was the one that he, yeah. Right, right, right. So I guess in reality, well, Di Maria was the one he had that was the star before they decided to sign Hamas, and that kind of messed things up for him, right? Mm-hmm. And they had to sell Di Maria on to Manchester United. So they weren't really able to play in a diamond there, but perhaps at Bayern they will. A thing I, I'm looking at is Bayern's preseason. You see a lot of, uh, at least in this first game, a lot of young players mm-hmm. uh, being bloodletted, uh, including American Julian Green, who uh, – uh, scored a goal for Bayern in the first preseason game, and maybe he uh, he gets a look. I, I think more likely he gets loaned out. Uh, it's important he gets games. He's stagnated in the U.S. setup. But uh, a number of guys that uh, uh, will, it'll be interesting to see how they fit in. Uh, I, I also don't know if Pep is going to keep his word and not 
begin to try and raid Bayern. Right. Uh, I think Kimmich in particular is a player he'd like to take to Manchester City. I think there's no question about that. Maybe, uh, uh, maybe City comes in for Kimmich next year, but I, I think that's a guy right away when I look at what Pep has said, uh, the, 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 the concerns he has about the, this team he inherits at City. Uh, that's a player he molded and played very well, obviously, for Bayern and for Germany this summer that um, I think he's going to come after. Yeah, another player that he's a big fan of is Toni Kroos, but I don't think he's going to get that player from Real Madrid. Uh, in terms of other players that uh, I think will be looked at in this this summer, well, actually, the big player they're going to be missing, Arthur, uh, Karthik, uh, is uh, Frank Ribery still injured, Aryan Robin. We heard is out for six weeks, I think. Injured now? again, right. Correct. Injured again, perennially injured, both of them. Uh, Milan, let's talk about Milan, Karthik. Um, as you talk about with Ancelotti, uh, actually coached them in, in one of their most dominant spells. And, and you talk about that diamond. Best example of that diamond was when Kaká was playing uh, as that attacking midfielder under Ancelotti when they won the Champions League in 07. Um, they've had a huge summer so far, Karthik. I think, uh, I, I can't, I haven't checked this, fact-checked this, but anecdotally, I think they have spent the most money so far. They've already spent 100 million euros on players uh, Baka's come in, Romagnoli's come in. Uh, Mihalovic is going to have his work cut out because when I was looking at the ins and outs, we're talking about, if, if we take into uh, consideration the players coming back from loan and leaving, we're talking about turnover of an entire squad for the most part here. Yeah, and I thought they would do this over the course of a couple windows, and, mm-hmm. and it looks like they're going crazy in this window. Obviously, uh, coming off an unsatisf- another unsatisfactory uh, right. season last season, but uh, they've uh, they've they've made the um, decision to uh, to go out and become very aggressive in terms of uh, uh, of the kind of players that they're signing, and I think. Um, they they want to play a little more of a, of a ball possession approach, uh, more passing, keep the ball in, in midfield, and and that's uh, that's obviously what uh, uh, they, uh, they they did in uh, going ahead and and bringing Montella in to, to help manage this team. Absolutely, and um, the next game we'll talk about Karthik is Liverpool Chelsea. Liverpool uh, with with. Klopp having a first real window where he can turn over the squad. Uh, we've seen him bring in Sadio Mane from Southampton. Karius, Joel Matip has signed on a free transfer. Uh, and on their way out are Jordan Ibe, who moved to Bournemouth. Uh, Martin Skirtle, Kola Toure, who we knew would be leaving, and Teixeira as well, who just didn't make the cut uh, at Liverpool. So Liverpool also going through that transition. Uh, but what I feel like is they're quietly doing some good uh, while the likes of Man United and Man City are going for the really big transfers, getting the big headlines, Liverpool have done a good job of staying under the radar and making some good, decent, uh, respectable signings here. Yeah, and and you have to also consider what happened this summer in the Euros. International doesn't always translate to club football, but Joe Allen, for me, was one of the 10 best players or so in, in mm-hmm. the entire Euros, along with his uh, compatriot Aaron Ramsey, who I think was probably one of the three or four best players right. in the Euros. I, and uh, Arsenal now, they've signed Granit Xhaka, at least in theory, to play Ramsey's position. Uh, we're not talking about Arsenal, of course, but uh, that's something that uh, Wenger will have to sort out because sure. Ramsey certainly had a great summer. I think Joe Allen had a great summer, so that's almost maybe in Klopp's mind like a new signing. He's now playing with a lot of confidence. You see what he can do in a deep-lying role with uh, another midfielder who's going to go 
side to side and make the right runs and pick the right passes out, which Liverpool does not have. Liverpool has a lot of guys that they don't have Aaron Ramsey-like player. They have a lot Mm -hmm. of attacking midfield-type players that are just that, that they're uh, guys who are looking to score goals or or they're guys who push forward. They're going to need to sign that player. Now, the guys that they've signed are Sauter Mane, who is an upgrade on what they had, but is a similar style player to an Adam Lallana or to a Roberto Firmino or a, a Philip, uh, Philippe Coutinho. So he's in that uh, vein, just a, a, an upgrade, right? Uh, it's not really filling a need, but it's an upgrade. Uh, Joel Matip is a player I've seen a lot with Schalke. I've seen him a lot in person, including uh, here in uh, in Florida against Florida Strikers, and he's a player I like a lot. Uh, I think he, he he helps them in central defense. Is, is he an upgrade on Skirtle? Well, he's different than Skirtle. I mean, I think he's better with the ball at his feet than Skirtle, and he may not be quite as tenacious as Skirtle, and you need that tenacity, tenacity in the Premier League. So right. that might be an issue. Uh, Colo Torre has left. Uh, I thought Torre was um, – much better than I expected last season. Yeah, I, I agree. He thought he was very good in the Europa League final. Um, it, it was um, the other. I've, I'm blanking out who their other central defender was, but their other central it, defender had a bad game. Um, it was, was it Chan playing there that day or Lucas playing there? Yeah, that day? it was someone else, right? It was yeah. one. It was someone because playing that position. Soccer was suspended, so it wasn't right. Soccer. And then now I have to mention. I don't want to get Liverpool fans going, but it seems like uh, Soccer was erroneously charged. And um, yeah. missed out on uh, the Europa League final, which I think would have made a huge difference considering how that game match went. And then uh, missed out on the Euros. And could he have helped France with Varane injured? Uh, I mean, Rami did okay, but I, I think um, UEFA might owe that 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 man and and the, and the club and the country he he represents um, mm-hmm. some sort of compensation. I'm just throwing that out there. Uh, erroneously charged at the worst possible time for yeah. both his club and country. Another player that should be rewarding compensation to Chelsea, well, two players, Pato and Falcao. They should be giving their wages back to Chelsea after uh, what they did last season. They are out along with Salah and Kalas from Chelsea. Uh, Chelsea coming into Chelsea and Golo Kante, as we mentioned, but Batshui as well. And Batshui had a, a mixed tournament, but lots of potential with that player. Yeah, lots of potential with him. Let's see how he acclimates. Uh, you know, it seems like uh, every Belgian player had a mixed tournament, and every Belgian player has a lot of potential. I like the idea, by the way. You might not, uh, Nipun, but I'm going to throw this out, and this is a complete uh, uh, sidebar. But I, um, I like the idea of Louis Van Hall managing Belgium. I think he can win something with them. Uh, Absolutely, huge upgrade. I, I agree. Yeah, huge upgrade on uh, on uh, on. Uh, <laughs> I can't even remember the name. Wilmot. Wilmot. Yeah, he was so forgettable as a manager. <laughs> um, I'm hoping Belgium can close that deal. There are strong indications that they will go for Van Hall and uh, guys like Batshuayi. I, I think they'll their potential will come out if they play for Van Hall at the international level instead of uh, um, the, the the horribly wrong experiment of. Uh, I mean, I know you have you, when you have great players at the international level, you want to kind of promote them as coaches, which is what Belgium. Jim has done with Wilmots, but now now it's time. Uh, they're about to lose out on their golden generation. They've got one or two more tournaments with this team. Uh, it's time to uh, go out and get a real experienced hand, and that, that's Louis Van Hall. Uh, but back to back to Chelsea. I think um, Antonio Conte probably wants to 
bring in another central defender and another central midfielder. And then he can build the team in his mold at Chelsea. Mm -hmm. We've already seen tactically what he can do with players that aren't as fancied as the guys he's now got at Chelsea, including Angola Conte, who they've signed, who was arguably the best player in the entire Premier League last season with Leicester, the champions. Uh, so he's brought in that that big-time player. Uh, he's got still in, in Willian and a guy like uh, – uh, Cesc Fabregas, when he's on, guys that can be difference makers in games. He still Hazard, has Hazard. Hazard, who is Costa. hit from his, He still has Costa. Right. So I, um, I'm excited to see how Chelsea looks. Maybe it takes a season. It took Conte a season at Juventus to really get rolling. But once they got rolling, they they uh, blew Serie A away to the point where I think we began to perceive Serie A as a very weak league mm -hmm. because Juventus was so much better than everyone. I think Juve being much better than everyone had something to do with the weakness of the league but uh, and the, the fall of the two Milan clubs, but also a lot to do with how good a coach Conte is. So uh, I'm excited to see Chelsea. Uh, it, it'll be um, also interesting to see if he can find a way to uh, use a guy like Van Ginkel who comes back from loan, um, uh, Quadrado who comes back from loan and really uh, I, I think he would probably like uh, Christensen back from uh, from Mönchengladbach but uh, mm -hmm. it doesn't look like that's going to happen right. that's a guy I think he would really like uh, a young player that was ignored by Mourinho yeah I think Antonio Conte coming to Chelsea uh, there's a lot of good um, uh, there's a lot of good will about what Conte did especially with that um, under talented I guess Italian side but I think it doesn't bode well for two players one is John Stones. I don't think John Stones will move to Chelsea anymore under Antonio Conte because, uh, and the other, I'll tell you the reason. The other player that does not bode well is already at Chelsea, and that's your uh, American uh, defender, Matt Miazga, because Conte does not have a good record with young central defenders. He has a great record with central defenders, but he does not have a good record with young central defenders. So I think uh, Miazga is going to go out on loan, and John Stones will probably, from the sound of it, move to Man City now. Yeah, and it sounds like Pep is, is really hot to trot to get his hands on John Stones. I, I'm not quite sure if Guardiola watched last season or if he's just talking <laughs> that up to, to Martinez. Uh, right. But we saw what um, Guardiola did with Jerome Boateng, who was a player I right. didn't like very much when he was at Man City. Remember, he was at City before he mm -hmm. was at yeah. Iron. That's he struggled at City. Struggled. He really struggled at City. And he struggled, I think, to, really under Heinkins. Uh, he was playing out of necessity, but uh, he, he turned him into uh, uh, one of the best central defenders in the world, Guardiola. So you, there are these individual data. Same with same with Gerard Piquet. I mean, Piquet, right. uh, yeah. he did yeah. that. He with, did with yeah. Man United was uh, mm -hmm. same as Boateng at Man City, really. Yep. Very yep. similar. Great, great comparison. And Karthik, let's rattle off the names of these other games. And can you maybe you can pick one of these games that you're looking forward to watching. Uh, Barcelona Celtic, Chelsea Real Madrid, Bayern Inter, Liverpool Milan, PSG Leicester, Barcelona Leicester, Real Madrid Bayern, Chelsea AC Milan, Liverpool Barcelona, Celtic Inter. What's a game out of that list that you're looking forward to watching? Probably Barcelona Leicester. Yeah. I think that's the game. I think we're. I think the most compelling thing about this tournament for us is that Leicester City is in it now. Mm -hmm. uh, Charlie Stilitano made some unfortunate comments about, uh, well, you know, Manchester United has done more for the game than Leicester, and um, who, who wants to see Leicester and, and that sort of thing, and then had to had to recant uh, within 24 hours. Just got clobbered in the Bristol's, right. and um, 
and, and now has brought Leicester into the tournament. Smart move by Stoltano, by the way, to get Leicester into this tournament. Mm-hmm. They are an attraction globally right now. And uh, I think that is just a huge game for Leicester City to face Barcelona and to see how they match up for their supporters to face off against Barcelona uh, because Leicester is going to be seated in the Champions League. Remember, the seating is done differently now. It's not done on UEFA coefficient. It is mm-hmm. for pots two, three, and four, but it is not for pot one. Pot one, it's all the champions of, of the big leagues, right. top seven leagues, plus the reigning Champions League champion. They will not face Real Madrid or Barcelona or uh, or PSG or... Um, Bayern in the group stage. So this is a real opportunity for them. They're going to end up facing in, in, in the group stage, the likes of, uh, of Atleti, which is you no, know, no picnic, but Atleti, <laughs> Borussia Dortmund, uh, uh, Roma. Those are the sorts of teams they're going to see in the, uh, in the champions league group stage. So they're, you could say, well, they're now in Europe, so they'll get to face these sorts of games. They may not get to face Barcelona. So that's a big one. They also play PSG, which will be, which will be a lot of fun. Yeah. Also. Definitely. Uh, two diametrically opposite ways to play football uh, in PSG uh, in terms of how you build a club. And that's a perfect point here, Karthik, to, to step away from uh, Section 1. Uh, before I do that, really quick, let me say, if you are interested in catching any of those games, make sure you look up SeatGeek. And next week, we will be talking more about transfer rumors. So don't think we forgot about all the other clubs. We'll get to those. We just focused on the ones in the International Champions Cup for now. So we'll be back for Section 2 where we'll discuss ProRail. We're back with Section 2 of the World Soccer Talk podcast. Before we get into ProRail, Karthik, let's do a quick disclaimer. So, listeners, if you've come into this conversation with an agenda of us against them, or that one answer is indisputably right to any of the questions we'll address, you'll find this conversation rather disappointing. Because as is true of any complicated issue... The answers tend to be more complicated than any agenda-driven responses to these questions. Both Karthik and I are interested in asking and answering questions rather than furthering an agenda. So now, Karthik, now that we've lost about half of the ProRail crowd, let's begin this conversation. First question is, Karthik, is ProRail required to take U.S. soccer and or U.S. men's national team to the next level? No. Why not? I think there's so much that can be done in terms of player development and infrastructure around the game that does not involve ProRel. Now, would ProRel help? Would mm. ProRel make things easier? Yes. Okay. There's no question about well, that. Well, if it makes but, it easier, then isn't but that... But it's not required. Yeah. You okay. can still do it without ProRel. Mm. I do think ProRel makes it easier. But uh, if you don't have ProRel, you still have an opportunity to put the kind of money into player development at the youth stage with uh, hiring the right coaches and teaching the right techniques that will make this uh, make this country more successful in this sport than we currently are. And, and the reality of the situation that a lot of ProRel advocates don't get is they say, well, MLS, and I'm paraphrasing one or two of them here, but MLS is like a Burger King franchise, right? And and there's no competition between Burger King franchises. That is nonsense. You know, in fact, I will say this as someone who has worked in NASL and currently serves as a consultant to 
a consultant slash hybrid kind of staffer to an NASL team because I'm, I'm, I'm more involved than the average consultant would be for the strikers. There is a lot more predatory behavior and competition within, within MLS than there is within NASL. And NASL, mm-hmm. there's a little bit of this feeling, and maybe it has to do with the structure and, and where they are, and NASL being uh, a young league and, and, and feeling like the system, may, the deck may be stacked against them. But there is a feeling of a need of collective good in NASL. Uh, all the teams are looking out for other teams. And, uh, and and you don't poach staff members from one team to another. You don't hire another team's coach. You don't hire another team's trainer. You don't hire another team's PR director. Mm-hmm. In MLS, those rules don't apply. In MLS, I've seen... In the last, and I would say 10 years ago, it wasn't like this. The last five years, we've seen so much poaching of, of trainers, of, of PR staff, of marketing staff, of coaches, and uh, of teams reporting other teams to the league for predatory behavior. And, yeah. and um, Now, part of it is that MLS has two tiers, right? They have a tier of teams that are very much kind of American sports franchises run along the Burger King McDonald's model, as, as the pro rel ad, ad, uh, advocates put it, and correctly in those cases, teams like New England, teams like DC United, that run like the uh, NFL team in town or the NBA team in town. Then you have teams like Kansas City and Seattle and uh, Orlando that are newer teams that are, uh, well, Kansas City is an original team, but they have had new ownership, right? They had new owners coming a couple of years ago and mm-hmm. a massive rebrand and, and, and a restructuring of the organization. But Seattle and Orlando that are teams that moved up from the lower divisions uh, were promoted in a sense, but they bought promotion, right? They didn't earn it on the field, although uh, based on the results, both teams got in lower division. State would have been promoted to MLS mm-hmm. if we had for a rail. And they have pushed the envelope. Orlando naively thinks they're operating like a European club in the U.S. And they make some mistakes because within the MLS structure, there are restrictions on who you can scout, who you can sign, when you can scout people because you're protecting those those New Englands and D.C.s. And Orlando has been reported to the league for poaching and, and violating those rules on multiple occasions. So I don't think MLS is quite bad uh, and, and as uh, kind of cookie cutter as the proponents of ProRel on the extreme side of that argument make mm. it out to be. Uh, that having been said, there were plenty of MLS teams that need to improve and do run like Burger King franchises. <laughs> By the way, I, I take offense to the Burger King franchise uh, denigration because I love their jalapeno chicken fries. So I'm a big Burger King fan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, Burger King is an example because they're I know. So Karthik, the, um, let's talk about the player development thing a little bit more before we get going on some more tangents. The thing that I want to point out is that uh, in the last, maybe or the second last Eurocopa podcast, you and I talked about Iceland and talked about you know the coach terrific coaching uh, that they have over in Iceland, and a lot of the pro rel proponents rightly point out that the coaching level in MLS and coaching level in American soccer in general is subpar. So I guess the operational question here is, what is what are the things that we need as American soccer uh, consumers and, and supporters and people who analyze the game? What do we need to see to convince us that... Oh, actually, let me rephrase. What are the things that are required to improve U.S. men's national team, U.S. soccer? One is coaching. What else is required? Infrastructure, a financial commitment, and a um, a willingness for and this and I think the discussion is going to go in this direction. 
a willingness to break up the pay-to-play cartel Mm -hmm. that dominates youth soccer in the United States. That is the overriding problem with U.S. soccer. And those who say that it's somehow linked to Major League Soccer and Soccer United marketing and the lack of pro-rel are just naive to the history. Now, do do I think it would be easier if we didn't have a closed league at the top? Yes. And as I said on the outset, I don't think pro-rel is required. I think it would help. But I think ultimately... There are some MLS clubs, uh, many MLS clubs, that are kind of bucking the um, whole pay-to-play system and 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 that that um, entrenched youth soccer uh, oligarchy, if you want to call it that. That that's that's in power, and that right. really is the power behind Sunil Gulati. I know the, the the Ted Westervelts of the world like to attribute everything Sunil does to being motivated to in, in, to protect MLS. I think a lot of what he does is motivated to protect those pay-to-play youth soccer clubs who uh, buy into the U.S. Soccer Development Academy structure and that who also uh, are uh, politically very powerful in each state's youth soccer association. And because they're so politically powerful in each state's youth soccer association, they in fact can control the votes for most USSF elections, Mm -hmm. more so than Major League Soccer or any professional league. They have more power. They have more money, uh, although that's beginning to change. There are a number of MLS teams that are bucking that by giving scholarships directly to guys who they recruit uh, and they're poaching from pay-to-play youth clubs. So that's uh, – and scholarships meaning they're fully paid, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, MLS teams are not allowed at this point to put anyone in an academy that they charge, which is a good thing. The bad part of this is er, – there's no bad part of that. Let me rephrase. The bad thing is that some MLS clubs have youth teams below the academy level or outside of the academy level where they are also engaging in pay-to-play. But not every MLS club, but there are some. Yeah. Uh, but I think pay-to-play is is the be-all and end-all and, and breaking that up. And I, do we break that up uh, by allowing for solidarity payments? Look, I, I, have, I've, I, I think the U.S. should be involved with solidarity payments. I do not, however, like the idea of a club that has already charged uh, and made thousands of dollars off a kid's parents, then getting a million dollars in a transfer fee for that same kid, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Or whatever percentage they would get under a solidarity payment. So uh, it's it's uh, this came up when uh, Danny Ng signed with Liverpool, and I made the point, and I hadn't really thought about it. I don't know who the person on Twitter that responded to me was, and maybe they listened to this podcast, and maybe they should stand up and take some credit here. Uh, I basically said, look, uh, uh, Ings is Burnley's going to get X amount of uh, pounds from this tribunal because he, he trained at Burnley. He, he was a youth at Burnley. This is what should be happening with DeAndre Yedlin. This is what should have happened with uh, the other players that have been in question. Yedlin being the most prominent one, right? Because Spurs, when they signed him, thought they were sending part of that solidarity pay- payment to Crossfire. Right. Now, what in fact has happened, what in fact was then pushed back on me was, well, how much did Burnley charge Danny Ings to be part of their academy, part of their youth club? Hmm. Their incentive was this guy could be really good and play for the first team, get us promoted to the Premier League, which he did, and then we'll sell him. That's what happened. Hmm. So um, without that structure, um, 
maybe you know they don't deserve solidarity payments if, if they're basically charging a lot of money for the players already and then uh, want to claim some sort of solidarity payment when the guy goes on to play for an MLS club and gets sold to a European club. So that's something to think about. So, so players that are coming through the ranks, uh, well, not the ranks, American players that are making it tend to, the, the, the way we consider them having made is when, when they move to a European team, you know, in, in terms of whether it's Bundesliga, uh, it started, didn't start with, but the, the one prominent figure in that was Landon Donovan, uh, playing both in the Bundesliga as well as uh, as at, at Everton, um, and then a few goalkeepers b- before him. But the point I'm trying to make here is that if the operational definition of a player having made it in soccer is is playing abroad, then is that a counterpoint to MLS's ability to develop players? That's a great great question because. I think in our minds, we think that Jaya Cesardis and Darlington Nagby, let's take those two examples, they can never be finished products. They can never be finished articles because they've never played soccer really at any level. Obviously, Nagby was born in Liberia, but uh, those two guys had never played soccer at any level outside the United States and outside kind of the established system, which was uh, – and, and and I have to say, the, by the established system, uh, the new establishment, which is which is better than the old establishment, but still needs some work in Zardes' case. Zardes was the first kind of poor kid uh, brought through the L.A. Galaxy Academy that made it, that really made it, mm-hmm. uh, made it big. And, and now is a national team regular. And I think he's a very good player. I know you're a fan of his as well. The question is, does he have to get to Europe to get better? I tend to still think he does. In Nagby's case, as a player born in Liberia, his father was a prominent international for the Liberian national team, uh, moved to the United States at a young age, uh, but he played college soccer at Akron. That took a couple of years off of him. Then uh, he came to MLS, didn't have his American citizenship yet, and uh, has played in MLS. Uh, He's played his entire career in the United States, as I said, and now he's about to turn 26 and has never played in Europe and might never play in Europe. And we think this is the best American player we've had that to, that can dribble in tight spaces since probably John O'Brien. Mm-hmm. And, and that's high praise, right? Maybe, maybe that's a bit of hyperbole. John o, Johnny O was, the, the, if he hadn't been hurt, might've been the greatest American player ever. Uh, Johnny O of course left the United States as a teenager and went to Ajax. And that's why we think he was so good. Mm-hmm. Well, he was so good, but that's part of our thinking as to why he was so good. Um, I, uh, I don't know that we will ever redefine uh, that thinking. We think guys should be like John O'Brien and go at a young age. Or Jovan Karofsky, who didn't turn into the player we thought he'd be, but he went at a young age. Steve Terundola went at a young age, became a great player, uh, arguably the greatest club career of any American field player uh, in, in history. And he played his entire career at Hanover in the Bundesliga mm-hmm. and is a, a legend at that club. Uh, we still think in those terms. Can players become finished articles without going to Europe? Um, you know, I think maybe it's a little different in Nagby's case or in the case of if Jordan Morris stays in Seattle because it's those two clubs and the pressure at those clubs or if someone plays for Orlando, uh, the pressure, although Orlando's fans are not necessarily as sophisticated as Portland's or Seattle's. I, I think maybe it's a little different if guys play for Portland and Seattle. You can replicate the European experience in term of, terms of pressure, competition uh, at those two clubs. Can you replicate that if a guy is playing for the Colorado Rapids or no offense to these clubs or the or DC United or the Houston Dynamo? Probably not. You need those guys to go to Europe. Yeah, it's in, it's interesting to me because I, I think 
in order for them to be the finished product, as you said, they have to be playing against better quality players. In order to do that, the ML- level of MLS has to substantially improve. And how does the level of MLS substantially improve? If you have good players. So it's this circle that in some ways, it's, it's a, uh, it's a circular, you know, in, in logic problems, we call it a circular argument. But in reality, the problem is that one needs the other thing. And I think over time, MLS arguably has become stronger as a league. I think the uh, influence of uh, more money and influence of uh, bringing in quality player, uh, the designated player thing uh, is probably helping in terms of raising the, the, the level of the game, raising the viewership of the game. So those things are good, but I agree with you. I think for now... In order for a player to be uh, considered a top-level player, he has to play away from MLS, at least for a considerable portion of his career, or else we'll, we don't give him the level of uh, respect as a player that we would give uh, even Dempsey, who, who to be right. honest, failed at Spurs. I mean, he did well at Fulham, but he failed at Spurs. So, yeah. And you don't give the level of respect to guys who come back to MLS at a young right. age. So right, right, right. Michael Bradley, it's just a question of what what could have been. Uh, Landon Donovan, it, it'll always be that question. I, I think we we think Claudio Reyna, if not for the injuries, would have w- was was the uh, optimum U.S. player. Johnny O, I mentioned, uh, never uh, Johnny O played one game in his career in MLS. Uh, played mm-hmm. well, one game and that was the last game he played. It got hurt and that was it. But that's that's it. I mean, that's the end of um uh, of kind of how uh, we think. And mm-hmm. it, I, I think there are two ways to go about this. If our academy structure gets better and you have the ability to break guys in through Major League Soccer, then it's a good place to start. And then you want guys in their peak years in Europe, and then you want them coming back to Major League Soccer at, at the end of their career so they can extend their career the way Jermaine Jones has. I think Jermaine Jones leaving Schalke and coming to MLS at the time he did uh, was perfect. He's been able to extend his career and Gosh, I mean, Jones is, is almost 35. It is possible he will be in the next World Cup. He's playing that well. He's right. playing that well in MLS. Uh, he's still one of the best players in MLS. And he's played that well for the national team, except when he does stupid things and gets himself suspended, right? <laughs> but he's still... But again, Jermaine Jones is a guy who grew up in Germany, right? He, he came up through Schalke's system. Right. Uh, he's not a guy that... Um, that he's not a guy who had been dumbed down to the American soccer level ever in his career. Um, there's a reason why at 34 he's more fit than the American... Uh, the American-born so, and raised players, maybe. Yeah, so I think the the point, uh, coming back to our central topic here, I think the point that we don't know yet, because, because of the fact that the sample size is so small, because the U.S. is one of three systems other than Canada and Australia, I think, that doesn't have ProRel. We don't know if, if we had ProRel, would these players at this moment be better than the players are at this moment? But uh, I guess the, the one way to analyze that, Karthik, is... Let's ask this question. If these players had a pro-rail system to, to, uh, to, uh, where they could fail. So, so they, you know, the team goes under, they're in the second division, they have more, uh, the youth players have more time to develop. That's one way of looking at it. But the other way of looking at it is that American teams, uh, in, in the American sports fans tend to, tend to be obsessed with winning. So I don't know if it's necessarily true that an American soccer player in a Division Two, will be given nearly enough time to develop. Yeah, as no, he would. I'm already seeing this with NASL. Yeah, you make a great exactly. point. I'm seeing this. NASL has a higher average age 
uh, per player than MLS or USL. And I, I when I have conversations with NASL fans, including some of your your friends in Indy, yeah. they they say, well, we want to win now. We we know we don't want to see exactly. our players leave. Absolutely. And I, and I, and, I, and I've said the second division should be for developing players. That is the that was the big reason I got involved with NASL when mm-hmm. when and, and the idea of that we could be the the the, the kind of the 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 farm team, not the farm team, but that's the wrong term, right? That gets everyone offended. But the place where players develop and then go to Europe, we're talking mm-hmm. about them going to Europe rather than MLS and become stars for the U.S. men's national team. Uh, M- NASL clubs, with the exception of the Cosmos and the Railhawks, uh, maybe it's changing now. Indy, you've got an NPSL team. For Lardo, we've got an NPSL team and a U19 team. U19 team that's actually, by the way, going to China and will face Real Madrid's U19 team and Wolfsburg's U19 team in, in a uh, tournament abroad mm-hmm. uh, in the next few weeks, which is kind of exciting for us. But um, there's been a de-emphasis on player development at the second division level because a lot of the fans say we want to win. Exactly. They're hyper-competitive with uh, with the other teams, and they're kind of in their, their own bubble, not looking at the fact that – and I just had this conversation off-air with uh, a person I broadcast the game with yesterday, Fort Lauderdale-Carolina uh, game, that uh, uh, they, they, were, they were remarking that – why is it that all the good young players out of academies are going to USL instead of NASL when NASL is the second division mm-hmm. and USL is the third division? And mm-hmm. it was there is an interest in winning in the at the NASL level among the fans to sustain the teams, which is forcing uh, teams to spend, I think, unhealthy amounts of money on players that are recycling within their league and they're older players. They're 28 year old guys, 29 year old guys. We see transfer fees for 31 year old guys, uh, upwards of a million dollars, which in, in uh, us so- or reportedly upwards of a million dollars, close to a million dollars, which in us uh, soccer terms is just ridiculous. And I'm, and so I think that's the problem. I think that there's, it's difficult in our culture for a team to say, hey, we are developing players. We right. are a development team. Come see the stars of tomorrow. We're a team that might place a guy on Real Madrid or on Manchester United one of these days. Uh, no one's interested in that, it seems. And and that's unfortunate. I thought our fans were more sophisticated than that because I think it's still kind of cool to say, hey, I saw Jeff Cameron when he was in training camp for the Houston Dynamo, his rookie season. Cause I, I can say that I went out to Houston and covered them. And there was this guy that they had drafted. That was kind of this versatile kind of utility player. I think it's cool to say, I saw that guy and now he's been a regular in the premier league for three or four years. Um, but I guess a lot of American fans don't see it that way. No, I agree. I, I, and I see it with Indy 11 team that I support because uh, we had our first two seasons. We weren't so good. This year we won the spring championship, uh, and it is big on the back of Coach Hankinson signing a bunch of players who who are older than twenty seven, twenty eight years old. It's on the backs of rating a couple of other teams yeah. uh, in 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 uh, lower division soccer. Yeah, Sacramento, for instance, that's the most notable one, and so. Uh, but that's just keeping up with the Joneses, and Hankinson is uh, has as good a scouting network as anyone mm-hmm. in, in American soccer, which Indy is learning, and the rest of the league is learning painfully because a lot of these. That's another thing. A lot of these NASL teams they don't scout; they just go by word of mouth or who agents bring them, which is mm-hmm. why I think Hankinson was able to go beyond that. Yeah, uh, because he's he's coached all over the world. Yeah. So he, yeah. I I was told very early on by a, a friend of mine who who follows Irish football. I know you and I have had this conversation offline. I'll say it on air and said on air on a, no, a number of other programs which cover NASL that I was told right away, by God, you know, second division in the U.S., uh, Zayed, he's going to tear it up. 
Mm -hmm. uh, because typically that kind of player doesn't sign in NASL. So I right away tipped uh, Indy as my uh, as my uh, dark horse before the season just because of that signing. Mm -hmm. And it's it's panned out. But that's you don't get players like that normally at the second division level in the U.S. Yeah, uh, I guess the point is consistent between the two of us, Karthik. It's that it's not necessarily true that if, if we had ProRel, uh, they'd have we our our teams, our NASL and USL teams, maybe USL more than NASL, but NASL teams would allow for those players to develop the way they are in uh, championship and Division One and Division Two in England. So just, I guess the conclusion of that question is just having ProRail doesn't well, but, fix... But has it developed as well as people think it is? I mean, uh, the great the great indictment of the ProRail system is probably how England's national team has developed over the course yeah. of the last 20 years. Oh, yeah. The great... The great uh, thing you can use as a, uh, to promote the uh, ProRel system is Iceland. And, and I, I agree with, uh, with, with, with the ProRel proponents that that's a great story and there was incentive well, and, and it, everything yeah. was incentivized. But England is the opposite. Mm -hmm. Because of ProRel, you've got top teams rating the, young, the academies of teams where players could actually develop uh, in the in the championship and League One level. They're sitting on the bench. We, we just got through talking about Chelsea and all the guys they've loaned out. And those guys never develop properly. And then England has like a player pool of 35 guys and they have to take 23 to a major tournament. That, that's the reality. England doesn't yeah. have that many players. The U.S. has a lot more players that can play internationally than England, believe it or not. And and I, I have to say that the, the Iceland thing is amazing to me because I point this out multiple times on Twitter and, and to you offline that the Iceland model of those players is more similar to MLS to the American model than it is traditional pro rel right. because almost every well first of all not one single player on that squad not one single player on that iceland national squad plays in iceland plays in that pro rel division in iceland so the the immediate cry from the pro rel people was just hilarious but the the second part of that is a lot of those players came through at academies in near nearby countries, whether it was Sweden or wherever it was, and it's similar to pro uh, similar to, uh, the American uh, model, where a lot of these players play in uh, in the states till they're ten, twelve, thirteen, yeah. fourteen, hit that uh, that promise age, and then they play. Uh, they need to come through other academies. So I think Iceland, if anything, is an example of how it can happen without a league that is pro rel. So um, yeah. Let's let's move ahead, Karthik, uh, to to the next question here, which is uh, which is a first a straightaway question: Is ProRail viable at this very minute? This is this is the big question. No, no, right? Okay, so then we have to go. Why isn't ProRail viable right at this very minute? Because uh, teams are not sustainable at the second division level. In now, of course, there is the theory that some throw out there, including Ted Westervelt, that the second you take the shackles off, these they'll be millions and millions and millions of dollars in the lower division teams. They'll all be flush with cash. Uh, yeah. I've seen it. So, uh, it's basically a non-falsifiable non like, yeah. hypothesis, uh, right, right. which is great. Blackpool and, and, and all these yeah. clubs in, in, in Lancashire, and it all depends on, on uh, the economic uh, status of the areas. I am sure ProRel will really help the Brooklyn Knights. I am sure it will help uh, whatever lower division team in Los Angeles uh, uh, we're thinking about or in the Chicago area. Will ProRel help uh, the, 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 the lower division teams in Oklahoma City or in uh, in, in uh, uh, Wilmington in Charleston, South Carolina? I don't think it will. I think what will happen is what we've seen in England where you get these clusters of, of, of teams uh, that uh, clusters of areas where teams in the top division reside. 
side. And so what would end up happening is MLS or the top division would eventually be made up of teams from New York and Los Angeles and a couple other assorted places around the country. Or Seattle, obviously, Seattle, mm-hmm. Portland, that quarter, Vancouver, if if the Canadians were still part of MLS at that point. But yeah. that's that's what would happen. So I think there is a lack of sustainability at the second division level. Teams fold too often. Uh, teams are not managed professionally in a lot of cases. You need uh, – and in theory, okay, this is great because uh, uh, now there's this talk that, well, there's this monopoly, all of that. There's no there, – Division One, Division Two, Division Three. it's all semantics in the U.S. Hmm. In theory, if NASL or USL were able to attract sponsorships and investments – uh, as we thought we could at the NASL when I started there, we thought we could get these big sponsors and not um, not have to worry about MLS. And we could go into Los Angeles and Chicago and the places you want to be uh, if you want to get a big TV contract, Philadelphia, those sorts of markets, uh, New York, obviously. That um, There is, in theory, nothing stopping NASL from building that kind of league and building out their infrastructure. But unfortunately, it's just a byproduct, and it's not the fault of anyone in NASL. Mm -hmm. It's the byproduct of the sport in this country and the um, the, 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 the lack of stability at the second division level. The other thing I would say is I think uh, you can say it's because of MLS and it being KFC, football, whatever, that there are so many American soccer fans who don't follow the domestic game but i really don't think that's going to change i think there'll be some interest if we had uh, uptick in interest if we have pro rel i don't think i don't think it'll, the interest will be as low as it is now yeah. but i think by and large most of these american soccer fans have uh have hitched on to european football and to international tournaments mm-hmm. summer tournaments and that's their thing and, that, yeah, well, and well, i don't let's... think that's changing i just don't think that those people are suddenly going to be, have some sort of great interest in the domestic game because uh the reality is even if you have pro rel the quality of play is not going to improve mm-hmm. dramatically the quality of venue is not going to improve dramatically and i have to tell you that just maybe you, you, you don't agree with me on this Nipun. the quality the nasl is becoming a chore to watch the quality of play is lower than it was a year or two ago um and i think that might be because of over expansion in the other leagues mls and mm-hmm. and usl but uh, it just it's not a compelling enough product for people who um to watch um uh, like uh, for example I, i'll i'll give you this example and, and leave you on this uh, with this, this uh, the, my broadcast partner yesterday for the Strikers game, uh, Ken Lavecca, he uh, he hasn't called the soccer match before. He's a college football, college basketball announcer, but he knew all the right terminology. He did a great job with the game because he watches. He's a sports guy, so he watches the Premier League. He watches the Champions League. Uh, he likes soccer. Uh, I think he was kind of stunned by the quality of play in the game because he he'd probably never watched an NASL game other than to prepare for this. This was his first telecast for us for the Strikers mm-hmm. uh, to to uh, prepare for this game. Within 20 minutes, he's saying, gosh, teams are getting desperate, both Carolina and Fort Lauderdale are getting desperate, and they're fleeing long balls forward. And because in his mind, he's used to watching a proper match in Europe, uh, Champions League or Premier League, and that's what teams do when they're desperate late in games. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unfortunately, what's happened in the lower divisions in the U.S. and to a certain extent in MLS is that becomes a default tactic 20 minutes into a game. So I had to say to him uh, off air, you know, it's just the quality of this league. It's not the Premier League. It's not it's not what you're used to watching. And unfortunately, team, uh, uh, attacking players in NASL run out of ideas after 15 minutes. I mean, yeah. That's just the way it is. That's just well, the quality of it. Yeah, well, let's get to the support and the level of football in a, in a bit. But let's go back to the what you said at the start, which is teams are not sustainable in, in, uh, in the lower leagues. And 
that's always been my first go-to response to the question, why isn't ProRail viable right at this minute? And so I went in to read a little bit more about it in preparation for the podcast. And I was struck by two things. So first of all, there's there's no doubt that there are unsustainable leaks. Just with any, I, I have a bit of an NASL bias because I follow that closely. Uh, so just in terms of NASL, we've lost the Scorpions, Atlanta Silverbacks, uh, and I, I know it's a bit controversial right now, but probably Rail OKC will go under within the next uh, year or so. Um, so th- there's definitely some turnover, but in general, Karthik, there has been a steady increase in the number of teams especially in the last five years. Let's look at MLS. From 2011 to 2016, they went from 18 to 20 teams. NASL went from 8 to 12 teams. USL went from 12 to 29 teams. So overall, in five years, we have gone from 38 professional teams in the three ML, in the three big divisions to 61 as of today. You know what? So, that just, I'm sorry to raise this. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no I was just going to say, so... so uh, should we be analyzing this from the lens of it is true that teams fold, but teams fold in all leagues. Teams, Portsmouth pretty much folded. We know Leeds United will fold at some point. Teams do fold. So should we maybe, as a counterpoint to that very obvious uh, response, be cognizant of the fact that teams do fold and might not be because they're entirely sustainable, unsustainable? Well, it might also be the league structures in these three leagues because, mm-hmm. uh, and this is this is could be solved without Pro-Rel, Although maybe for, if there was Pro-Rel, it would help. As I said, for, I I on then on the surface, I think Pro-Rel is a net gain, but it's not yeah. the be all and end all. Um, so USL is a league that is uh, you, you mentioned they went from twelve teams to twenty nine teams in a five year period. USL is a league that is controlled by a corporation that has no investment in the teams that are in the league. Now think about that for a minute. That's different than NASL and MLS. It is an independent corporation looking to make profits for the independent corporation by selling franchises and uh, charging fees to all these teams. And if a team folds, great, they can sell a franchise in the same market again. I, I don't know why FIFA allows USL to continue with their current structure. Why they haven't gone in and said, uh, this is this is an illegal structure. This uh, violates the, uh, the the tenants of the game. The the team owners and the teams themselves should have some sort of investment in this league. So that that that's that's point one on that. So uh, it it lends itself to USL selling franchises all over the place. You know what? The thing that's funny is that Ted he makes this point about KFC franchises, and he says that that's what. Um, um, MLS is. In reality, that's what USL is. Mm. Uh, if he made some of his arguments about USL rather than MLS, I completely agree with him. In fact, MLS is a league that the owners do everything. The owners of the teams, now it's funky, single entity, but the owners make the decisions. Garber is simply a mouthpiece. Um, NASL obviously has a, a team-owned structure, but um, we went from having 20... Uh, let me count, in 2009. We had 11 teams in NAS in, in uh, D2, USL Pro, uh, and then uh, uh, USL uh, First Division, and 15 in the um, in the in MLS. Okay, uh, we went from that, which was 26 teams in the top two divisions, now to having 32. Now that included some teams that moved up. So we had um, we had um, 
Seattle, well, Seattle just moved up in 2009, but Portland, Vancouver, uh, and uh, Austin at the time, which is now, which became Orlando and moved up, uh, the, and Montreal. So four teams moved up from Division Two to Division One in that period. And um, we've yet still expanded to some other markets, and there's this proliferation of teams, right? Mm-hmm. And now these reserve teams and all of that. So the question is, is that sustainable because of the growth in interest? Let's look at where we were in 2009. Uh, the example I give, let's say April 2009, the start of that season, again, 11 teams in Division II, uh, three of which, four of which became MLS teams, uh, Orlando, or it was Austin at the time, but Orlando, uh, Portland, Vancouver, Montreal, and then uh, 15 teams in MLS, including Seattle, who had just moved up from Division II. We are now at 32. Now, in 2009, to watch the Premier League, you had to watch it on Satanta Sports, which was a pay channel, a pub channel, basically, or on Fox Soccer Channel, which very few people got. Mm -hmm. Uh, MLS had games on at random times, uh, in random places. Uh, there was no uh, easy way to watch La Liga or the Bundesliga or Serie A. Uh, there was no coverage of uh, 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 no real media covering Division Two, which was USL at the time. Uh, there was very limited kind of uh, uh, scope of MLS. Sports Center, they would make jokes about soccer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, no other uh, sports editors at newspaper. Uh, at newspapers would 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 mock soccer and, and the DC United would get uh, hammered by the local paper because oh it's okay to spend taxpayer dollars on a baseball stadium because that's a great American game but who wants to see this MLS team play this DC <laughs> United which all the foreigners they go to that game I mean seriously that was the kind of tone we used to have to deal with and in as late as 2009 because I think about 2009 and the battle over DC United Stadium while the Washington Nationals who had just relocated the to town got a stadium DC yeah. United had been the most successful professional team in the Washington area and the capital area and they were being spit on by the local paper by the washington post and by other media they're saying well it's all these salvadorian immigrants and people from africa who've immigrated here that they they're the ones who go to the dc united games it's not really a community thing hidden racism there too (laughs) um now in 2016 we got every premier league game on an nbc network and nbc has blown it out of the park we have the euro final getting over four million viewers we've gotten over 25 million viewers for world cup finals and for u.s world cup games uh, we have the bundesliga on fox we have games every weekend on over the air channels nbc showing 25 or 30 premier league games a year on regular nbc uh, fox showing eight bundesliga games fox showing uh, seattle and portland as we record this on on regular fox i mean just um we are in a place we weren't in in 2009 so maybe Going from 25 teams to 32 teams uh, in the top two divisions is uh, is uh, in fact slow growth when you compare it mm. to how many people are interested in the sport. Um, but then you have to then walk back and say, well, is it sustainable? Is this a bubble? Is at some point the amount of scandal around the sport, FIFA scandal, much of which uh, took place here on American soil, is that going to soil the growth of the game? It hasn't yet, but. Um, that that's that's a big question. Yeah, I I mean I the, you make some good points there, but that's actually a good way to analyze it. So if we took USL out of the equation, it would be a very small growth. It'd be twenty six to thirty two in five or six years. Actually, that's you know now that we talk about it, it's not a bad growth. That's a that's a that's a, a team a year pretty much, and that's right. probably a sustainable. Um, you don't want the bubble. We know what happened with NASL. Uh, 1.0, where they, where they tried to expand that bubble very quickly and it fell apart. So 
I think that's some response—a uh, response there that that's about yeah, right. Well, of course, of those D two teams, four of them I mentioned: uh, Orlando, uh, Vancouver, uh, the, the the other two, Montreal and Portland, moved up to MLS. So mm-hmm. there was even movement within that. Within that the, point, yeah. and Minnesota United's about to move. Yeah, to right, Minnesota. and you're about to move up, right? So that that would be five on that yeah. list. Yeah. So I guess the unsustainable teams in the leagues—it's. It, it, not, I guess the way I summarize this part is that it's not as true as I thought, because I, in the sense that I always just reacted to it in this very uh, guttural way that that is no, you know, those teams are unsustainable, blah, blah, blah. But it's a little more nuanced than that. And I think there is sustainability in the league. But the, the second part of that sustainability question, Karthik, is the support, which you got into briefly. Teams in both MLS, definitely NASL as well, um, and and USL played often to quarter, half, at best, filled stadia. There are exceptions to that, like my beloved Indy 11, like Chattanooga FC, like Detroit City FC that are selling out their stadium. So how do we analyze this from the 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 forest level picture here? Is the support of these teams sustainable for for a for a for a pro rel system? Well this is where the pro rel proponents have their argument right they'll say well it would be well, they have their arguments everywhere so <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but they will say they will take that point you just made and turn it on his head and say well that's because there's no context in games and i have to say i i admit that myself uh, i i'm sitting here as the strikers are preparing for a quarterfinal in the u.s open cup and we beat orlando in the uh in the in the last round big rival mls team we're a division below them. We don't get a chance to play teams in the top division uh, other than in this competition where we go back to NASL play. And it's like, what's the point? What do you win? If you win the NASL, you get a trophy. You guys just won the, the league. You got a trophy out of it. You didn't get promotion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it was cool. And, right? and even but- more so, even more Socratic than that, if you're not competing for a league, what exactly are you p- playing for? So, so in the 11 for two seasons, we weren't anywhere close to uh, battling for the title. So, right. It was basically a pointless season, right? So this is a this is where the proponents of pro yeah. might have a point. Yeah, absolutely, that that there's no there's no con, there's no relevance. I mean, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going through the motions. I'm a professional, right? Um, I don't want to say I'm going through the motions. I'm going through doing what we do as a professional when we get back to NASL play with the strikers, assuming let's say we lose to Chicago on Wednesday night and we have a game in Minnesota that Saturday. But uh, how how can you be interested knowing, okay, we had the one chance, you have one opportunity to make a dent and make a run and get on national television. Well, I mean, NASL is on national television, but get on ESPN level national television and that's done. Now you go back to a league that if you win it, you get a trophy. That's basically what you get. So it's uh, it's cool. It's fun within the kind of vacuum that we live in. But um, so I think that that's where some there might be some points for pro rel proponents. Now, the flip side of it that they never talk about is what happens when the MLS team that's getting twenty five thousand fans a game gets relegated. Right. What, right. What's happened to Middlesbrough though? Now, now they're back up. But look at, check out the crowds. All the pro rel advocates, check out the crowds at Borough over the course of the 
period of time they were in the championship. Now, the, when they went down in 2009, the crowds were still okay at the Riverside. But um, by 2011, 2012, the place was empty. And it was because they still had a high wage bill, bloated wage bill from the Premier League. That was a couple of television contracts ago. So you didn't get the kind of parachute payments you get now when you go down from the Premier League. And so ticket prices remained high. The team wasn't really fighting for promotion. Uh, they were struggling uh, in, in an economically deprived area. And no one was going to the games. Now, they've now come back up after seven seasons out. Uh, and they've been promoted. But how many people do you think are are going to go to Bolton who have a fairly new stadium with them now going down mm-hmm. to week one. How many people are going to go to those games? They were already having massive attendance problems after they got relegated from the Premier League at the end of the 11-12 season. And uh, they uh, they are now a financial basket case. How many people are, 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 go, are going to Fulham games right now? Yeah. Fulham has expensive ticket prices. They're right in, in uh, near central London. Uh, now that they're they're fighting relegation from the first from the uh, championship. This is an issue. Yeah, I, th- I think even more so, Karthik, because a lot of those teams that you mentioned, I, I think of Leeds United, which actually had great attendance when they yeah. first went down, uh, but they've uh, tailed it's just off. Kind of extreme example. Yeah, because Leeds ticket prices, for those who don't know, continue to be in the top ten in all of England. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Middlesbrough, you point out, uh, when Southampton went down, they had good, uh, pretty good attendance. Uh, this we're talking about seven, eight years ago. Uh, and, and like uh, Derby County is another example who had good attendance. So there are team, there are those teams that are supported. But the difference with <laughs> American soccer is that those teams are in the blood of those fans. There have been season ticket holders for generations uh, with some of those teams. It's not true for for American yeah, teams. A lot of these right. American teams are brand new. They they, they don't have the same identity. Uh, they might in twenty years, but right now they don't. So, I think it is it is a serious concern whether those teams will continue to be supported. I can say with, uh, with maybe it's my bias. I can say that if Indy Eleven were to get relegated, we would still sell out half the stadium. Would we sell out the whole stadium? I don't know. And that's that's a that's a supporter base that I can tell you is very passionate. So if, when I extrapolate that out to American soccer in general, I do have I do agree with the counterpoint you raise, and I don't think that it is sustainable from the support perspective either. The third perspective, Karthik, is the big one, the elephant in the room, uh, the one that you know is the boogeyman for all the ProRail guys, MLS. MLS, the, the big talking point is it's a franchise system. And, and we know from if you are an owner of an MLS team, you obviously don't want ProRail. It, it makes logical sense. Why would you want to lose all the money you spent bringing in a franchise, buying into this franchise system? So... The question then becomes, it makes sense. Anyone would agree that from an MLS owner perspective, ProRail does not make sense. But if you are an MLS promoter, if you're a supporter, if you're a player, do you think that that should be something they should be talking about? As the MLS, uh, uh, should, should Don Garber be talking about this? Or is it off the board? It's... Uh... Yeah, it, it, it's a situation where single entity has created all these legal entanglements that makes it difficult. Um, at the same time, I think MLS has uh, 
if they're going to continue to expand and they're going to push towards 32 teams and 36 teams, I think there's a tacit admission that they're going to have to split the league at some point. Mm -hmm. And there's going to have to be some sort of promotion and relegation. The very least they can do is split East and West and have the two leagues not play each other. Uh, As it stands now, what's happened is the East and the West teams in MLS only play once a year. And we've had, uh, and this is the competitive thing. So the the argument for ProRel and the ProRel people can be made by looking at the Eastern Conference of MLS, where teams are racing to the bottom. Uh, The the, the football is terrible. Uh, uh, The teams are all very mediocre. And they don't have much incentive to get better because everyone around them is mediocre. Mm-hmm. Now, the flip side is the West, where I think you could make the argument even the ninth or 10th plus team in the West. I think Seattle's in last place in the West. They're better than the best team or, or everyone but the top one or two teams in the East. Uh, the the West, on the other hand, has has been so competitive that teams uh, have uh, have not disengaged. What they've done is they kept building and they kept competing and they've rated teams in the East of players and they've done better. They've done a better job of scouting Latin America and scouting Europe than the teams in the East. So those teams competitively have become very good and the Western Conference has become almost like a Division One with the Eastern Conference almost as a Division Two. Maybe at some point you formalize the split mm-hmm. if this continues and this people say well it, it goes in cycles i've had that argument made to me and, and I, I agree these things tend to go in cycles but the west now has been consistently better than the east in major league soccer for several years and i'm even seeing this spill over into usl where the western conference in usl with all the reserve teams from the western conference mls teams is better than the eastern conference in usl with all the reserve teams from the eastern conference teams because the western conference teams have better academies they have better scouting they have mm-hmm. better infrastructure they have better fan support so maybe that's what ends up happening mls is the elephant in the room but maybe the league splits into east and west and the west ends up as the first division and actually, that's a great point you raise. Uh, the, the, I wasn't even thinking about West versus East. That's another problem for ProRel is if NASL is a second division and USL is a third division and they're spread out with these huge geographical distances that exist in the US, are they going to have the financial power to sustain a league that is so far spread out? Because a lot of the ProRel guys don't understand the logistical problems of running a club. Travel is expensive. It's it's not Travel's a joke. The worst. Is yeah, prohibitive you you and I know NASL of an level. NASL trade that happened for a player that that was on the basis of a hotel stay or something like that. Yeah, so, and, I, and I um look, I mean, I I took I took it on the chin because it involved my club, Fort Lauderdale, but it mm-hmm. was a good trade for us because. Yeah. We were able to defer the cost of two trips to San Antonio. San Antonio is also one of these airports that's that is not a hub airport for anyone. They don't really have a lot of low cost carriers. Southwest flies there, but they don't they don't have Virgin America or JetBlue or Spirit or the other airlines that lower tend to frontier that tend to lower costs in markets. So it's it's, it's an expensive trip, yeah. and to get two trips paid for to San Antonio for your entire team that's worth. Uh, tens of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a lot of money at the lower division level. Yeah, travel is a big deal. And that's the other thing, as I s- said at the outset, uh, the, the the league will be uh, the travel costs of going from coast to coast on a second division budget are very difficult. And yeah. I think if you had straight pro rel, there would be a situation where 
teams would eventually just form in geographic clusters because there's uh, stronger soccer infrastructure support in the New York, New Jersey area, in mm-hmm. the uh, uh, Southern California area, and then the Pacific Northwest, and maybe maybe in Florida. So you would have these clusters form, and then right. Chicago. These clusters form, and then nothing, no first division teams in between them. And that's what's happening in England. Right now, we have a situation where teams in the Midlands keep getting relegated. We went years and years and years without any teams in the East Midlands in the Premier League until Leicester got promoted it again and then won the title two years later but uh we had no we've had no clubs in yorkshire most of the last 10 years and hull keeps getting promoted but hull's not really yorkshire it's kind of mm-hmm. on the periphery we haven't had a club from sheffield or leeds or bradford the major cities in in, in uh in Yorkshire in the Premier League in 10 years. That's not acceptable. Yorkshire is the home of football. That is mm-hmm. where this sport became, went from being just kind of a, a, a recreational sport to a codified sport, was in Yorkshire, was in Sheffield, and they haven't had a team in the top division in 10 years. We have, we're seeing very few teams now from uh, from Lancashire. Uh, uh, not long ago, we had uh, Burnley, Bolton, Blackpool, Blackburn, uh, Wigan, all these uh, Lancashire teams up and Preston knocking on the door. Now Burnley is well run so they keep coming up and down but the rest of the teams have all fallen by the wayside if you have economically deprived areas uh, oh and let's uh, birmingham now we're down to one team from the birmingham area from the mm-hmm. west midlands which is west brom uh villa wolves and brom have all crashed out of the premier league at the same time as the economy there is weaker than in the rest of the country mm-hmm. so um you can't escape that 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 is what will happen in the united yeah. states if we have pro right? okay, you just can't because i've yeah. seen England. A good comparison in terms of this, because England is a tiny country and you're seeing the differences there. I think a good comparison to, to even uh, elaborate further on that point is Russia. If you look at what's going on in the Russian second division, they are having massive problems with the, sustaining the clubs in that division. And it's because of the distances traveled. So I, I think it, the, the travel cost... Or the, Germany. Germany, Germany uh, now, yeah. now Leipzig has, has come up with the, the being bankrolled by Red Bull. But for years and years and years now, since Hansa Rostock got relegated and, and uh, one or two other clubs, we went without a single club from East Germany in Bundesliga 1. We went about seven seasons without one. I mean, that's just crazy when you think yeah. about it, uh, that, that all the clubs in Germany, and which is a bigger country than England, were basically clustered. In Bundesliga. I think it's uh, only St. Pauli, I think, that was the exception. Is that correct? No, St. Pauli's in Hamburg, so it's in the so, Oh, that's right. Okay. Um, yeah, it's been years and years and years. Um, and I know a lot of people are upset about Leipzig and being a corporate team, but I actually somewhat embrace it because I said, you know what? You look at the map of Germany, half the country isn't represented in their first division. Right, right. Some representation over there. Mm-hmm. And so, Karthik, uh, come back to MLS. So one of the things that you and I – well, you more than I because I, I usually just don't respond to people uh, on Twitter – are the allegations that are made by a lot of pro-rel proponents that – a lot of people in the media, and we got a tweet about this today, uh, a lot of people in the media are pro-MLS and anti-pro-REL. So f- let's take away the extremes right away. I, I mean, obviously, let's not have a straw man argument. I don't think you are or I am in the MLS pocket. I've watched maybe 10 MLS games my whole life. Uh, so <laughs> let's take away that extreme. And let's also, to be honest, take away the extreme that there isn't an influence. Because at the end of the day, Karthik... MLS is the most popular league. It is being watched in England. Therefore, there, there, uh, the 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 uh, the articles about MLS are being clicked on more than the ones on NASL, more than the ones on USL. So obviously, as journalists, as reporters, there is a bit of a bias to MLS. Is that fair? 
That is very fair. I think there is a bias towards MLS, and I think there are a lot of people. I mean, it's been a struggle to get people to pay attention to the lower divisions. But one of the things I've learned is that we have to have some sort of relevance in the lower mm. divisions, which is why I would like to see NASL teams sign more young players and try and develop more young players. I mean, I think it's going to be great when Haji Wright develops at Schalke, and we can say he played for the Cosmos. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to be a, a very good thing. Uh, and Carolina has has done this. There are a couple of guys that have come through Carolinas. Uh, Mike Grella is a great example of U23 team. He then went to Leeds and now is back. Uh, came back to the Railhawks for a little bit and now is a big star in MLS at, at the Red Bulls. But there are um, there, that you need to build that relevance. But yes, I think uh, there are a lot of journalists that are very biased towards MLS. And I should point this out: uh, MLS actually gets. Uh, uh, it's in terms of market share, gets a higher television rating in the UK, and maybe it's when Sky is placing the games and they're all in prime time and they all involve Lampard or Pirlo or uh, some player they know, Drogba. But um, they're getting actually a higher market share than they are in the United States. So hmm. that is, I guess, something the pro-rel people can can point out and say, hey, I, I, look, uh, they, they, it's not appealing to our, to our fans here. But, but back to your point, I think there is – a lot of media doesn't cover the lower divisions fairly, doesn't pay attention. At the same time, I think there's more awareness uh, of it among American soccer journalists. It's been a process. I think there's more awareness of it now uh, today than there has been uh, any time uh, in, in, my, in my lifetime. I've been following this and I, ever since MLS uh, uh, really took off. And I think a big part of that, I, I, I begrudgingly admit this because I know a lot of these pro rel people support a certain team. Um, but it is that team having the cosmos and NASL has forced uh, media to pay attention one way or another, mm-hmm. um, to whether they want to just write articles to bash the Cosmos, they have to acknowledge NASL exists because the Cosmos name is relevant and the Cosmos draw a lot of attention in the UK and in, 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 in South America, etc. cetera. Uh, but yeah, I think there is some media that is not necessarily paid by MLS. I don't buy that straw man argument, but right. I think there's some that are very biased and mm-hmm. very defensive. I think that's an important thing. You know, any attack on the quality of play, any attack that Jurgen Klinsmann makes on player development in MLS, any attack made by um, uh, those who who don't really uh, maybe watch the league as closely as as these journalists we're talking about, they get very defensive and Mm. and they get um, they have a particular thing for 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 Britain. I, I, I. I don't know. I mean, they don't seem to have the same sensitivities if a German makes an argument or if uh, someone from Spain makes an argument about MLS. <laughs> sure. Someone who's British says something negative about MLS, they get very defensive. Hmm. No, that that's fair. And I, I think I think that just like with everything, there's truth in the middle. So there is definitely something that we need to do better. Uh, I, I include us in this conversation. I include World Soccer Talk myself in this conversation uh, to talk about this more. Um, so I think the summary there is that we, we both agree that the ProRail is not viable at this moment. Uh, and and we elucidated some reasons. So let's look at the future, Karthik, and we'll end the conversation after this overarching question. What needs to happen for ProRail to be viable? And let's start with 10 years. Is that possible? 10 years is possible, yes. Uh, it's possible if you elevate the level of second division, you... Uh, get some serious sponsors and investment in these ML and these NASL clubs and they build academies. NASL clubs now are the, I'm sorry, having NPSL teams is not having an academy. Hmm. 
the Cosmos are doing the right thing. Cosmos are, are going along the right trajectory. Carolina is going along the right trajectory. Carolina has these huge infrastructure advantages, though, in their market, in, in the Raleigh-Durham area with uh, uh, Castle and, and with just all of the local universities there. It's it's a unique area, so it's, it's difficult to replicate what they've done elsewhere. In fact, they have some advantages MLS teams don't have. I don't think yeah. there's quite as much many good colleges, good uh, good colleges who play college soccer at a decent level because most colleges don't play college soccer at a decent level. I think they're more in um, that part in that area than probably anywhere else in the country. A concentration of that. So you need more academies. You need a long term kind of commitment to doing certain things and meeting certain benchmarks after two years, four years, six years, eight years. Right now, what we see in NASL and USL is a lot of, okay, we're in survival mode. Our leagues in survival mode, right. teams are in survival mode. Uh, we need to do this. We need to expand here. We need to expand there. And I think at some point you also have to freeze expansion. What, Which, what, what, unfortunately, I guess, is what sustains these leagues right now. Right. I was going to say that that would kind of work against what we need to get done. So the I guess... Uh, the big question there, Karthik, is the people we need to convince the most is MLS. Can we convince MLS in 10 years? Say say what you predicted will happen. Say they break into two divisions, whether it's East-West, whether it's more uh, diffuse than that. In 10 years, do you see MLS conceding the power and agreeing to and uh, to ProRel? Oh, they'll agree to ProRel if they control it. I mean, if MLS as an entity, there's MLS 1, MLS 2, and MLS 3, they'll take it. Mm-hmm. I, I think they, they might even take it now. The, 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 the problem is having teams that well, – I mean, look look at the Premier League. The, the teams leave and they go to the Football League when they get relegated. Uh, the Premier League, a lot of these problems – it's funny because we, we talk about pro-rel and I, I, the, the, the pro-rel advocates in this country. I, I hope they realize a lot and a lot of their arguments are anti-corporate arguments, um, et cetera, and I, I sympathize with a lot of those. A lot of the problems in world football or in the club game that they, that they see – that I don't necessarily see on everything, but they see emanate from the Premier League breaking away. And that is their great model of Pro-Rel, right? <laughs> but the Premier League breaking away and being able to keep the money within the Premier League and have this kind of internal close, it's not a closed league in terms of, um, in terms of Pro-Rel, but it's a closed league in terms of money. Uh, it really kind of uh, has done a lot of damage to the game in, the, in, the, in England, you could argue. Mm-hmm. If MLS were able to get their chops on... Um, what would be the equivalent of the football league and league one of uh, championship league one, league two are controlled or now NASL, USL, PDL, uh, slash NPSL are controlled by MLS. I think they'll go for pro real. I think they go for it right now. I think the issue is they want control. Their owners want to control. They want to control the revenue and they won't control the revenue in mm. an open system where they are just kind of a governing body for one of the leagues. So essentially what we, we are coming to here is that, in order for a pro rel to happen, one, the teams need to be more sustainable in terms of, um, uh, you know, there needs to be more stability. Perhaps expanding teams needs to stop. Number two, we need to have more consistent support. We need to know for sure that uh, maybe in 10 years, there will be enough identity for fans with their teams that they would support it would they, if their team got relegated. Number three, MLS would need to first split up into one, two, and then possibly a merger or uh, some sort of combinatorial system of NASL, USL. Uh, and if all of those things happened, we would possibly have ProRel. But the time frame that you give, 10 years, I don't agree with. I think 20 years okay. is probably more realistic. But uh, here, here's the thing, Karthik. 
I'm of the opinion that ProRail is inevitable. Do you think that that's true? Um, is it inevitable? I think it's likely to happen. I think there's hmm. a, I, I'm not sure if it's inevitable. Uh, I'd say there's a, a 65 to 75% chance it'll happen. So maybe that is inevitable. Hmm. Maybe I, I'm thinking inevitable is 100%. But yeah, yeah, I think it's it's more likely to happen than not to happen. Okay. Yeah, I, I think we're on the same page with that. So, listener, uh, we would appreciate any feedback you had. Well, preferably, sure be plenty. Yeah, um, preferably it would be feedback. That's that's. So, if you have an, an actual opinion that reg- regarding to these questions that actually wants to enhance the conversation and not stop the conversation, please share it with us. We would love to talk to you more about it in a respectful way. But Karthik, I'm sure we'll talk about this more. And if we get some feedback, maybe next week when we're talking about transfers, we can set aside 10 to 15 minutes to talk about feedback we got. So uh, like I said, we as a soccer community, um, you're a journalist. I pretend to be one. Uh, We should talk about this more and, and enhance the conversation. And we'll take more of a lead on that at World Soccer Talk. So Karthik... Uh, now that we've talked about uh, things that will make everything in s- American soccer explode. <laughs> it's light and, you know, it's just uh, fantasies and rainbows and unicorns. Unicorns all over the place, Karthik. Uh, so on behalf of everyone at World Soccer Talk, I want to thank our listeners and Karthik. Enjoy your football. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.